passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. God, we thank you again um, for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for the chance to uh, just learn more about your plan for us and your uh, wisdom on a difficult topic. God, I pray that this conversation would be uh, seasoned with grace, um, but also, God, that we would be truthful. Lord, I pray that you would come and speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome uh, to Crosswinds as we are in the middle of a, a four-week series uh, looking at some of the most uh, pressing issues of our day. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at God's Word and, and what does the Bible say about the Bible and how does the Bible really serve as the foundation for our lives. And what we saw is that God's Word as the foundation for our lives is uh, really the, the authority for us. It serves as the authority for us, and what we want to do as Christians is to dedicate ourselves to that book. It is our desire to submit ourselves to it, even when we don't like what it has to say. As we approach to this morning's topic, uh, it's a very, very difficult topic to approach. Uh, we're covering it not because uh, this is our hobby horse. If you are a guest and this is your first time with us this morning, I kind of feel sorry for you that you picked today to be the day to come uh, because we don't typically talk about this, but we are covering this because we love God's word. We love the Bible, and there are differing opinions out there on what the Bible actually says about homosexuality, and it is crucial for us to understand what it actually says so that we can believe it. And so that's our approach this morning. This morning is not about sharpening swords. It's not about filling up on ammunition to go back out into the world. It's simply to let the Bible speak to us. To let the Bible speak and see what the Bible has to say about this topic. And the passage that we're going to be going through, we're going to go through a number of passages, but the passage that we're going to focus on at our start this morning, really going to frame our discussion is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud this passage. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I love verse 11 there. Verse 11 starts with, such were some of you. It's important for us to remember as we approach this discussion that homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. It's not worse than any other sexual sin in God's eyes. And to us, it should be a reminder to us of who we once were before Christ came into our lives. You see, the reality is some of us struggled with sexually immorality. We were sexually immoral but in heterosexual ways. Some of us, many of us, all of us were guilty of idolatry, placing other things above God in our lives. Others of us struggled with greed or drunkenness or slander or more. 
And yet because of Christ, all of us have been washed clean in his blood. We've been justified solely through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through anything that we do, but solely by his name. That's going to be our focus this morning. We have a lot to cover. This is going to be a little longer than our typical Sunday morning service sermons are. Uh, I just ask that you would bear with me because what we're going to do is we're really going to look at this in two parts. First, we're going to look at what the Bible actually says about this topic. And we're going to go through most of the passages that talk about homosexuality. Then we're just going to look at some common objections, either from those in the church who advocate for same-sex marriage or from our culture. Uh, some objections, and we're going to see how we are to wrestle through these or to look at these. So that's going to be our, uh, our approach this morning. And let's start with the Bible. So that's what we're going to do first. Starting at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the creation of Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to see if these have anything to say about this topic. So this is Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone, is my bones and my flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and, the, and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here at the beginning of the Bible, we see the picture of what God meant for marriage. We see that the marriage of one man and one woman is really rooted in creation itself. Before sin enters into the world, God had a perfect plan in place. And that perfect plan consisted of Adam and it consisted of Eve. Oh, as we look at this passage, we see that Eve is really just the perfect complement for Adam. She is really the missing piece in Adam's life. That's why God creates her. But a lot of people, as they will look at this passage and they want to advocate for same-sex marriage, will say, well, this passage really doesn't talk about the, the exclusivity of marriage between just one man and one woman. They'll say that Eve is not so much a compliment as she is just a companion. And after all, there is nothing special about a wife being a companion to someone. Any man or any woman can, can, can fill that need for companionship. Is this true? Is this what the passage is really telling us? Let's take a, a brief look here. Last week, as we were exploring uh, our topic last week, we were in, in 1 Corinthians 6. And as we were in 1 Corinthians 6, we saw this quotation from Genesis chapter 2. that We just read here, Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what we saw last week is that God gave us marriage as a tool to point us to him. It was a 
tool that he, he created marriage, his ultimate purpose for marriage is to model his relationship with his church in the same way that there is a great union between a husband and a wife that is inseparable in God's eyes. So also there is an inseparable union between God and his church. That's the primary purpose of marriage. To show us God's love for and his relationship with his church. But when we bring same-sex marriage into the picture, it changes things. We, we no longer can, can look at marriage as something that reflects Christ and reflects his church. Instead, it's something different. It's something that doesn't fit into the Bible. The ultimate purpose of marriage no longer exists without a man and a woman. See, every marriage whether how good it is or how bad it is, whether it's a Christian marriage or not, for better or worse, points us to Jesus. And yet that's not possible in this new framework of looking at things. The argument of Genesis 1 and the argument of Genesis 2 is clear, that God's original plan for marriage was exclusively for one man and for one woman. It's the focus of creation as we look at the first two chapters of the bible before sin enters the world that god's original plan for marriage consists exclusively of one man and one woman let's look at another passage or another couple passages rather Uh, these are from leviticus Uh, leviticus addresses this issue in two different verses and these two verses are a few chapters uh, apart from one another we're going to read both of them the first is leviticus 18 verse 22 it says this you shall not lie with a man as with a woman it is an abomination Uh, a couple chapters later it says in, in chapter 20 verse 13 if a man lies with a male as with a woman both of them have committed an abomination they shall surely be put to death their blood is upon them seems relatively straightforward Uh, what God is saying here. And and can anyone guess what the typical response from someone who would advocate for homosexual relationships is? How would they respond to something that seems pretty straightforward here? They would respond by saying that this no longer applies to us because it's found in the Mosaic law. It's found in the law that Christ abolished. And after all, a few verses earlier, if you look in Leviticus 18, uh, in verse 19, it says that a man should not have sexual relations with a woman during her period. And the argument says, well, if we're not keeping verse 19, then why keep verse 22? After all, they're both abolished because Christ came. It sounds pretty compelling when you think about it, and, and maybe they are right. Let's take another closer look at Leviticus uh, just as a whole and see what's going on here. Have you ever wondered what the purpose of Leviticus is? Some of us might say that the purpose of Leviticus is to discourage people as they're trying to read through the Bible in a year. Uh, This is to weed out the weak from the strong, to make sure that those who aren't really trying aren't able to read through the Bible in a year because it's really tough to get through Leviticus. But that's not the primary purpose. Leviticus is given to us as a sign of God's holiness. See, the argument of Leviticus is that God is holy. And if you are going to be God's people, if you're going to worship him, if you're going to follow him, then you have to be holy as well. That's why the word holy and the word holiness, they appear over 90 times in the 27 chapters of Leviticus. It is on the forefront of Moses' mind that the people of Israel would be holy. 
And in order for us to be holy, we have to worship God. We have to behave in a certain way. And that's the focus of this book. But that really doesn't, excuse me, that really doesn't answer the question of whether this still applies for us today. So how would we respond to this claim that this no longer applies? A couple thoughts. Uh, First of all, we should be very leery as Christians to just throw away a part of the Bible, to just abolish a part of the Bible. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. One author, as he was writing about Leviticus and how this passage still applies to us today, says this, Jesus brings the scriptures to completion, to its climax, to its intended goal. This is far different, however, from assuming that unfamiliar sections of Leviticus should be automatically set aside. In the truest sense, nothing in the Old Testament should be set aside. All scripture has been breathed out by God and is profitable for the Christian. Even the obsolete sacrificial system in the Old Testament reveals to us something about God's character and the nature of our obedience. If the underlying principle from Leviticus 18:22 and chapter 20, verse 13 is something other than God does not approve of homosexual behavior, then that needs to be proven from scripture. Not from a simple assertion that we can dismiss the Old Testament casually. It's a pretty good thought. Jesus comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus comes not to get rid of the law, but to die in our place so that we no longer have to fulfill it ourselves to prove ourselves righteous in God's eyes. Not only that, but the the New Testament, if you look at it, it still treats the book of Leviticus as relevant for us, as applicable for us. It says that uh, Jesus in the the Gospels uh, quotes Leviticus chapter 19 when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, still focuses on the the book of Leviticus. Uh, Paul, in in his letters points to Leviticus as a reason to follow God and as a reason to be holy. And Peter, in the book of First Peter, in the second Peter, uh, he, he looks at Leviticus and the fact that it says that God is holy and we should be holy as well as reason for our holiness. Our approach to the book of Leviticus, our approach to the law may change, but it has not been dismissed. In fact, the burden of proof should rest not on those who hold to a biblical view of marriage, but instead those who would wish to change it, those who claim that this no longer applies in our situation. Now, it's also important for us to recognize that there's a difference between being unclean and being in sin. If you, if you notice, as you're reading the Old Testament, it talks about the difference between being clean and unclean. And this is a, a distinction that sometimes people will say, clean, unclean, that just means uh, un, not sinful and, and sinful. But that's not the, the same thing. Being unclean meant that you were unable to worship God for a specific period of time. It had nothing to do necessarily with being sinful. So for an example, uh, the passage that we, we mentioned earlier about uh, women with their period, that does not mean that the woman was being sinful by any means. It simply means that she was unclean for a period of time, unable to worship God for a period of time. And that might sound rough to you. Uh, well, that's not something that a woman can control. So how, how dare God uh, say that that woman can't 
worship him. But we have to remember that worship of God is a direct reflection of who he is. God is perfect. God is without blemish. And so for us to go into his presence, we also must be perfect. We also must be without blemish. This is why the book of Leviticus and the book of, of Exodus tell us that no animal must be sacrificed that has a blemish or is, that un, or that is unclean in God's eyes because it directly reflects upon who God is. But when Jesus comes and he fulfills the sacrificial requirement, the distinctions between clean and unclean no longer matter anymore. That's why we can say Leviticus 18.19 doesn't matter to us anymore, but Leviticus 18.22 still applies to our lives because it isn't dealing with clean and unclean like verse 19 is. The reality of Leviticus chapter 18, or the reality of Leviticus chapter 20 is simply this. God's moral law still applies to us today. It's still applicable for us today. Now that doesn't at all mean that we have to live out the law to merit God's favor. That certainly doesn't mean that we have to offer sacrifices to bring ourselves into God's presence. What it simply means is that we can look at God's word. We can look at the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and say there is much that I can learn about following God from these books. We can't just throw them away, throw them in the trash when we don't like what they have to say. So that's another uh, section of the Bible that deals with this. Another one in the New Testament. Um, homosexuality is mentioned in, in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans 1 is a great passage. It's a fascinating chapter that really hinges on the revelation of God. And we see two different revelations of God. First, you see that God reveals salvation through the gospel. And the second thing that you see is God reveals wrath upon the ungodly. This first revelation of salvation is found in, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the, righteousness shall, the righteous shall live by faith. That's in contrast to the second revelation of God, and that is his wrath and his judgment, which is poured out on his punishment of ungodliness and sin. And that's just in the next verse in Romans 1.18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You might be wondering, well, how do we make that huge jump from verses 16 and 17, all the way to, to verse 18. How do, how do we get there? And that's what Paul describes in the rest of chapter 1. And he describes that humanity, we have actually made three exchanges. And this has led to the revelation of God's wrath upon us. Three exchanges. The, the first one is this. Humanity exchanges the glory of God for idolatry. Humanity exchanges the glory of God for idolatry. Take a look at verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, the reality is we as humans have been created to worship God. He created us for that purpose. And if we're not worshiping God, we are going to worship something else. We were made to worship 
You want to know why wrath is coming? It's because we have exchanged our worship of God for our worship of other things. We've exchanged it for idolatry. That's the first exchange. The second exchange is this. Humanity exchanges truth for God, or truth of God for a lie. It says this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. One author uh, says it this way. He says, God created humanity in his image and, and ever since then we've been returning the favor. What he means by that is we've been created in God's image, but we choose instead, uh, to, instead of following him to reject the truth of who God is and instead to, to mold him into a view that's a little bit more comfortable for us. We decide that, well, we don't like God's wrath, and so we decide to get rid of it. We don't like what God has to say about how we should live, and so we get rid of it. We say that, you know what, God doesn't really care about what religion you follow or if you follow a religion at all as long as you are a good person. We're exchanging the truth of who God is for a lie. Because of that, wrath is coming. And the third exchange is this. Humanity has given up natural relations for relations with those of the same sex. Look at verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Some, uh, those who defend same-sex marriage, will argue that what is in view here, what Paul is arguing about, isn't uh, really the fact that they are, are having relations with those of the same sex, but instead that they are exchanging what they are meant to do. Okay, let me explain this. Uh, so what they would say is that it is unnatural for a straight person to have a relationship with, a, uh, with another man. In the same way, it is unnatural for someone with a, a homosexual orientation to have a sexual relationship with a person of the opposite sex because it goes against their nature. That's a really twisted reading of Romans here. Another way that people try to get around this is they'll say, well, what's in view here isn't a committed, monogamous faithful relationship between two people of the same sex. It's referring to uh, pedophilia uh, or things like that. It's referring to uh, slavery or exploitative relationships. But what's in view here isn't the type of relationship per se. It has nothing to do with orientation. What Paul is referring to is simply this gender exchange. That's the point of this passage. It's not orientation. It's not exploitation. It is there is an exchange taking place. The natural relationship that God is referring to in Romans chapter 1 is what we already looked at in Genesis 1 and 2. And that is what is being exchanged. Romans 1 makes it very clear to us that homosexual behavior is a horizontal rebellion of, or a horizontal evidence of a vertical rebellion. It is horizontal evidence of a vertical rebellion in the exact same way that idolatry is, in the exact same way that exchanging the truth of who God is for a lie is. All of these things are done in a rebellion against God and our desire to get rid of God in our lives. So that's Romans. 
Uh, two more passages, and then we'll be done with the first part. And these two passages, we're going to look at them both together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, which we already read, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, here's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. First Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, very similar. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, you might have noticed that you, you might be wondering why we've paired these together. And the reason is because they use the same word uh, here. And it's an interesting word. And uh, it's this word that means men who practice homosexuality. And I believe in your sermon notes, we included the transliteration. And it's this word, our sinakoitai, our sinakoitai. And here's the, the really interesting thing about this word. Uh, this word is extremely rare in Greek. It's so rare, actually, that it has never been used before Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6. In fact, most scholars believe that Paul made this word up. Paul made up this word, our sinakoitai, and that might sound concerning to us that, oh, well, why is Paul making up words? But the reality is, it's not a bad thing. Paul just couldn't find the word that he was looking for, and so he decided to combine two words, and it creates this compound word, and we'll get into that in a second. But there are a number of people who will argue that this word doesn't mean what our translations actually say. They will say that our translations have got it wrong, that, that we have actually been led astray by translation committees with an anti-gay agenda. And, and so that is what people will say, that it's referring not to a committed monogamous relationship, but instead referring to something that is sinful in God's eyes. Are they right? Let's take a look at, at Bible translation in general. I, I would guess, um, everyone, if you have a Bible, go ahead and hold it up. Just... Hold it up real briefly, okay? Uh, for those of us who have a Bible, my guess is it probably is one of just a few translations. I, I'm sure uh, if you have an NIV, go ahead and raise your, raise your Bible up. Yeah, we've got a couple NIVs in here. Uh, ESV, anyone like what I have? Yeah, all right. That's, that's great. Um, uh, NLT is another one that some people might have. Um, NASB, some people might have that one. HCSB, you know, I'm just throwing out acronyms now. You don't even know if these are real Bible translations. Um, uh, KJV, NKGV, these are other translations. Uh, every single, thanks, Bill. <laughs> every single one of these uh, translates these words in, in a very similar fashion. And every single one of these translations were created by a committee. These were a group of, of scholars people who are experts in biblical literature, experts that spent decades learning Hebrew, learning Greek, and understood the way these words worked. And so a question for you this morning, who are you going to trust more? Are you going to trust someone who has decades of experience, who sits down in a room with other people who also have decades of experience to say, you know what, I think that this word, even though it's rare, means 
this? Are you going to trust them? Or are you going to trust someone who has an agenda? Someone who's read a couple blogs online and says that every single scholar has it wrong. There are some things in our Bible translations that probably could be a little more accurate, but they are faithful to God's word. They are faithful to what God intends for us to have. Not only that, but I mentioned that these, this word, arsenikoitai, is actually a, a compound word. It's a, it's a connection of two words that Paul joins together, arson and koitai, that actually, uh, when you put them together, literally just means betters of men. And here's why I think that Paul used this word. There was another word out there for homosexuality, and Paul decides not to use that and decides to make up his own word. And the reason is, these two words, arson and koitai, are found in both of the passages from Leviticus. Both of them are found in our passages from Leviticus. Arson and koitai are both found there. I think what Paul is doing is he's looking at Leviticus and he's saying, you know what, the law still matters. God's word still matters for us today. We can still trust it. He's referring back to Leviticus and he's lifting it up saying that this is a good thing for us today. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 remind us simply this, that rebellion against God is a matter of life and death. Rebellion against God is a matter of life and death. This is not just an issue to agree to disagree on, as some denominations will say, as some Christians will say, because life hangs in the balance. The universal testimony of Scripture is that homosexuality is not to be praised but instead it is to be prohibited and warned against. If we say anything else than that, then we are leading people astray. And we will be held accountable on the day of judgment before God for what we have said, for leading people astray. The Bible is clear. The testimony of the Bible is clear that this is not something to be praised, but instead is something to be warned against and prohibited. So let's take a look at a couple common objections. First, we're going to look at some objections uh, from those who actually try to, to, you know, hold the Bible to some esteem, and then we're just going to look at at some cultural ones. First one is this. Uh, Homosexuality is only mentioned in the Bible a few times. How many of you have heard that one uh, before? Uh, a few of us, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a relatively common one. It's relatively popular out there. The, hesi- the, the implication of this one is that we should be hesitant to say that, the, to, to say that the Bible actually says something if it only says it once or twice. It sounds like humility. It sounds like, you know, we don't want to full-heartedly say this if we could be wrong because the Bible isn't clear. The only problem is it's false humility because the Bible is clear on this. Instead, it's a false premise saying something completely different. It's actually saying that our authority in Scripture should be weighted not on the fact that it's God's Word, but instead based off of frequency. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says so little about homosexuality? You know, I, I have in the past. Why, why does the Bible, if it's such a, an important topic, why does the Bible say so little about it? I think that we have to recognize This wasn't a controversial thing at all in the first century. 
It wasn't controversial at all. Both Jews and Christians recognized that this was something that was prohibited, that it was a forbidden practice for us. In one sense, as you read the Bible, you see that it is a situational book. It addresses the uh, concerns and the issues of that day. Just read any of Paul's letter, letters. They are addressing specific issues in specific churches. That doesn't mean that we can't apply them to us today. It just means that sometimes there's a little bit more of a gap that has to be jumped over. An example of this, uh, all of Paul's letters talk about circumcision, or just about all of them talk about circumcision. Why is that? It's because it was a very big deal in Paul's day and age. Today, it's, it's not really all that big of a deal. Now, we can still learn things from this, and we do learn things from Paul's teaching on circumcision, but it, wasn't, it doesn't apply to us as easily as something like writing about homosexuality would. It's because it's a different context dealing with different issues than us. This is a common objection, but it's relatively poor objection. Second one uh, that you might have heard, Jesus never mentions homosexuality. Anyone heard this one before? Um, This is another pretty common one. Um, This is just, frankly, an argument from silence. It says that Jesus never mentions um, homosexuality, so we should never condemn it either. Uh, Again, this is against the testimony of the Bible. And remember Jesus' context. Jesus is a Jew. He's growing up in a culture, lives in a culture where Leviticus is still binding. Every time Jesus talks about sex, he actually, uh, he narrows the definition of what is acceptable. He doesn't broaden it. This is why Jesus says that now lust is a problem or now divorce is a problem. Jesus narrows our definition. He doesn't broaden it. So if Jesus were to approve of same-sex marriage, then he would have been obligated to actually say something because it would have been so radically different than his culture, than his silence actually says. Plus, it's it's not exactly a true argument. Uh, Jesus, he mentions Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 frequently in his ministry, talking about this is the only legitimate form of relationship, a marriage between one man and one woman is the only way to honor God. Another objection. Bible isn't referring to committed uh, monogamous relationships. This is probably the most important uh, argument for those out there who who hold to the Bible and want to hold to the Bible, but also want to affirm same-sex marriage. They will say what is in view in the Bible is not a committed relationship between two people. It is instead referring to gang rape. It is referring to things like pedophilia. It is referring to exploitation. This is is why Paul prohibits these things, is, is the argument. The only problem with this argument is that nowhere in the books of the Bible that mention homosexuality is there anything like this that, it, that is mentioned. There, there's no sort of qualification or there's no asterisk that says, you know, I'm only referring to this. A regular relationship is fine. It's an argument from silence and frankly it's an argument against the evidence. There are people who are classical Greek scholars who will look at the evidence and say that every single sort of homosexual relationship was known in the first century. Paul would have known about these relationships. Even people who are in favor of same-sex marriage, they just don't count, they don't credit the Bible worth anything. Even these kind of people, even gays and lesbians will recognize this is a poor argument because it's not true. Paul would have known about these relationships, and he doesn't qualify his statements. This condemnation 
is universal about these types of acts. Another one, and th- these last two are going to be cultural, cultural approaches rather than biblical. Um, this, this one, I'm sure most of us have heard it. Uh, those who struggle with homosexual attraction are born that way. Those who struggle with homosexual attraction are born that way. And the implication of that is we shouldn't require anyone to do anything against their nature, against their very desires that they were born with. As Christians, uh, this is going to sound controversial, um, so please hear me out. As Christians, we need to recognize that there is a difference between homosexual attraction and homosexual action. There's a difference between having attraction towards someone of the same sex and acting on that attraction. There might be good evidence. I, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not too privy on it, so I'm not going to make a, a definite conclusion. But there might be evidence out there, or we might find evidence someday, that there is a genetic disposition in some people towards a homosexual lifestyle. There seems to be very good indications that this is a lifestyle that is, is created by the fam, family that you are in or the situations you find yourselves in, but there are certainly exceptions to that. I think that this really is a largely irrelevant argument. It is irrelevant because even though we recognize that homosexual attraction may not be a choice, we can't control necessarily who we are attracted to any more than my wife can control if she's attracted to me or, or vice versa. It's not like one day we just decided to feel a feelings of attraction towards one another. We might not be able to control that. We might not be able to control our temptations towards lust. But at the same time, we can control our actions. We can control our decisions towards lust or towards homosexual behavior. And that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about homosexual behavior. It's not talking about orientation. Because orientation is largely irrelevant. It's talking instead about action. See, all of us are born with sinful inclinations. All of us have sinful dispositions that we, that we are born with, that come with the package when we are born. That doesn't mean that they are legitimate. It doesn't mean that they are approved by God. I love the way one church states this. This is in their statement of marriage. They say this, We believe that heterosexuality is God's revealed will for humankind. And that since God is loving, a chaste and faithful expression of this orientation, whether in singleness or in marriage, is the ideal to which God calls all people. We believe that a homosexual orientation is a result of the fall of humanity into a sinful condition that pervades every person. Whatever biological or familial roots of homosexuality may be discovered, we do not believe that these would sanction or excuse homosexual behavior, though they would deepen our compassion and our patience for those who are struggling to be free from sexual temptations. I love that statement. Whatever the case may be, it's, it's largely irrelevant. These discussions or these discoveries may make us more compassionate towards those who struggle with these sinful desires, but it will not change the very word of God. Our last objection is similar, but it's a little more heartfelt. And this is probably the, the biggest one for me. Um, how can you demand so much of those who struggle with same-sex attraction? How can you demand so much of those who struggle with same-sex 
attraction. If the Bible believes what we say it does, and that's clear, then there are only two options for those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Number one, overcome it. And number two, live a, a celibate lifestyle. Those are the only options for us. And praise God that the church is filled with examples of that first one, of people who have overcome this uh, attraction, overcome this desire, and now live lives uh, that are faithful, God-honoring marriages to people of the opposite sex. Church is filled with people like that. But there's still others that don't overcome this, that they have to live a celibate lifestyle. It's the only way for them to live a faithful life. It's not something chosen by them. But instead, it seems like it's something that God has forced upon them. And one uh, gay Christian, and I'm just going to qualify that term. When I say that, I'm not at all referring to someone who practices homosexuality and considers themselves a Christian. I'm saying someone who struggles with homosexual attraction, but doesn't act on that, lives a celibate lifestyle because of their commitment to Christ. One of these people is in charge of a large uh, outreach ministry in the UK and says that he estimates that there are probably just as many Christians out there who know that this is wrong and are committed to a celibate lifestyle than there are people in the church who say that we should change what the Bible has to say. There are a number of brothers and sisters out there who are struggling through this. Maybe there are some here this morning. That God is called to live a celibate lifestyle, to overcome their attractions. Maybe you are familiar with the name Henry Nouwen. He's a famous Christian author. He struggled with same-sex attraction and lived a celibate lifestyle because he knew it was the only way that he could honor God with his life. I think that's the most convicting part of this entire discussion for me. It is well documented that Henry Nouwen struggled with depression And he struggled with thoughts of a lack of self-worth, all stemming from his sexual orientation, all stemming from feeling like a dirty failure before God. And for Henry Nouwen, the cost of discipleship was great. The cost of following Jesus was high. And when I look at someone like Henry Nouwen, and then I look at my own life. I see Jesus' call to discipleship as a call to come and to die to myself. I begin to wonder, well, how am I dying to self? How am I asking other people to give up so much when I oftentimes give up so little? How much am I sacrificing to follow Christ because the gospel demands much of me. The gospel demands much of the person who struggles with homosexual attraction. It says that they are called to a difficult lifestyle of celibacy. But the call of the gospel for the rest of us is no less difficult. It is simply different. It is a call for us to die to self. And and that's where application comes in. Let's just take a look at at three brief application points of where we should go as a church. First one is this, repent, seek understanding. Have you ever wondered why the depression and suicide rate among homosexuals is so high? It's because they're the butt of jokes. 
It's because they often feel the scorn of their family and their churches that they grew up in. We as a church should seek to understand where they come from. Seek to understand the way that they look at the world. Try to build a relationship with someone from the LGBT community. If you don't know anyone in that community, read a book. A great book out there is Rosaria Butterfield. She has a book called The Confessions of an Unlikely, Secret Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, incredible book. It's actually free right now on ChristianAudio.com as an audiobook. Just wanted to throw that out there and not... Not that I get paid for an advertisement or anything. Um, Second one is Wesley Hill, his book, Washed and Waiting. And Wesley Hill uh, is a man who is committed to a celibate lifestyle because because of his same-sex attraction. Incredible book. God calls us to seek understanding and to repent if necessary. Second thing is this, create a compassion, a compassionate community. Our church is, is meant to be a place of great community, and a place of great fellowship. I think Crosswinds does an excellent job at that. We can improve, however. And we have much to learn from the LGBT community. If you look at the LGBT community, it is a place where gays find acceptance. Really, anyone finds acceptance. Where there is communion and fellowship offered. Where others are understood. Now, I'm not at all saying that we sacrifice the truth of Scripture, but there is much to learn about what community can look like, about how we can walk alongside the broken, the hurting, those who are far from God and who need healing. Let us be a compassionate community. And the third thing is this. Die to self. Die to self. As we ask others to die to self, let us do the same. I mentioned this book by Wesley Hill, Washed and Waiting. In this book, he he shares how he realizes, almost paradoxically, that his homosexuality is a gift from God to help him grow in sanctification and holiness. He says this, Though it sounds politically incorrect to modern ears, the gospel has always said that God made a man from us what he wants, since we do not belong to ourselves. Strictly speaking, we have no inalienable rights. God reserves all rights for himself. And this extends even to the realm of our sexuality, what humans do with our bodies. The body is not meant for sexual sexual immorality, but for the Lord, Paul counseled the Corinthians, adding, and the Lord is for the body. You are not your own, he wrote, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. From the gospel's point of view, then, there is, absolute, there is no absolute right or unconditional guarantee of sexual fulfillment. And I would just add any sort of fulfillment for Christian believers. And this is one more reason the Bible and the church's prohibitions of, of homoeroticism have seemed less and less surprising or arbitrary or unfair the more I've thought about them within the context of the gospel. If all Christians must surrender their bodies to Christ whenever they enter into the fellowship of Christ's body, then it should come as no great shock that God might actually make demands of those Christians and their bodies. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These demands prove that God and God alone has authority over us. I think that's the reality that I want to land on as we close this morning. As we look at at same-sex attraction, I, I mentioned we... We could very easily look at this morning as a weapon, as loading up on ammunition, ammunition to say, this is why you're wrong, this is why you're wrong, this is why you're wrong. But let it not be that. This is a call for us 
to die to self. Same-sex attraction is a call to die to self. It is a call both for those who struggle with it and those who do not. It is a call to die to self for those who struggle with it because the only way for them to faithfully live out their calling as a Christian is to follow God in a marriage between one man and woman or through celibacy. And it is a call for us to die to self as we seek to walk with others, as we seek to recognize that the cost of discipleship is great. It will look different from person to person, but it is equally great for each person. I want to just close with verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for how you teach us. We thank you that it is clear. And God, we pray now that you would help us. Help us to be a church that seeks understanding. To be a church that seeks to be compassionate. And that we would be a church that dies to self. God, that you would help us come face to face with our own sinfulness. And through the grace of God, the one who washed us, that you would help us to overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.